Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis. This is season four, and today I'm on with Dave Cameron. Dave, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Alex. I am a uh, seasoned professional with a uh, degree in applied statistics who's worked in marketing analytics his entire career. I've had a a 30-year corporate career, um, and then for the last few years, I've been teaching at three institutions, and I am doing consulting on my own. So I opted to just hang out my own shingle, and I step in when clients of mine, uh, companies are looking for some sort of innovation, take something to the next level where they don't necessarily have someone internally that can do that. And then once it gets launched and turns over to maintenance mode, then I step out and move on to my next engagement. And I'm really enjoying that mix. I, I love teaching, I love giving back, and I love coming in and helping clients take things to the next level. Awesome. Um, so I want to know when you were just getting your first consulting engagement, how did you go about that? A lot of it was from the two companies I worked for the longest. So I worked for Nielsen for about 12 years from 2005 to 2017. And before that, I worked for Merkel for five years. And I'm good at keeping up with people. I mean, when I left Merkel in two, at the end of 2004, um, you know, LinkedIn was just getting started. I was an early adopter. I keep up with it and, and I talk to people. And so where a lot of these come from are people who I've known in the past and trust me and um and then one thing leads to another and there's a lot of word of mouth type of things. I mean, I've ended up with um, seven different consulting jobs in the last few years and all of them have been word of mouth, really. Is there a secret to it or is it more organic the way that you went about it where you are just genuinely just doing the work and networking and then the opportunities are sort of coming to you? I would say it's more organic, but I also watch for trends um, and I'll talk to people and say if anything's coming up. So going back to my first one, now I have to think about this. Um, so again, I worked for Merkel from 2000 to 2004 and then Nielsen from 2005 to 2017. And two months before my time at Nielsen ended, a friend of mine that I'd known from Merkel had just been promoted to be president of a small marketing services firm in downtown Chicago. And I congratulated him on being president. And he said, hey, we're, we're growing. We could use an analytics lead. Um, and one thing led to another. And they weren't necessarily a big enough company that, you know, they, they were probably yeah, 20, 25 people to say, oh, we're going to hire somebody full time. But sometimes you can just, um, you know, put your hat in the ring and say, well, well, let's try something. Let's go on a consulting basis. Let's do a short-term stint or a part-time stint and see what happens. And so oftentimes that's that's how these start. And, and I think because it, I know we'll probably get into this later is most of my marketing analytics has not been around tracking campaigns. It some has, but the majority has been about taking it to the next level, a new product development, a new capability. And that's a little bit of the reputation I have. So people are more willing to reach out to me and say, hey, we could use you for two months to set up this new capability. And then you're done. We'll, we'll move it to somebody, you know, who's got half your experience to just maintain it. So I want to ask about the value of that experience. How does experience actually help you come up with new ideas? That's interesting. Uh, part of it, I think I'm 
just wired that way a little bit. So I remember when I first went to Nielsen, um, you know, Nielsen's famous for uh, for a long time for the TV ratings, right? When it was just linear TV, Nielsen was the uh, was the game in town, and, and they still are for linear. Um, and they had these markets set up. They're called DMAs, Designated Marketing Areas. And that's how everything's measured. And so if a um, content owner, or, you know, an MVPD wants to say, oh, well, I'm going to buy time for the local station in Los Angeles, they use Nielsen's definition. And I asked after I started, maybe a week after I started, well, how did you come up with those definitions? How did you come up with those geographies? And I started with five other people. It was a big expansion for Nielsen. Six of us got hired at the same time. And I was told, nobody else asked that. You <laughs> asked that question. You're more curious. And I got sent to the vice president to get an answer. And I just have that curiosity side to me. And so some of it's just more natural and, and I'll ask more questions. So the experience has to be there because you have to ask the right questions. But I just tend to be the type who wants to find out things. Is that one of those soft skills that you kind of have to have coming into a role? Or do you think you can encourage more curiosity in people? I think it can be encouraged. I, I know there's some that it's it might be a more natural trait too, but I mentioned earlier that I teach at I te actually teach at three different institutions and I try to get people to do that. Because, you know, if, if we think about like all the AI based things, it's funny as we're talking, you know, there's all this around chat GPT and so on and so forth. And it's like, well, if you want to provide value in this world, you want to go beyond what a machine can do. You want to be able to be curious. You want to ask questions. You want to think about things that's not going to come like in an AI type of setting. And so that's a theme of mine. And I've watched students get better at it as they realize, oh, I'm in a university now. It's not just about memorizing facts and figures. It's about thinking through the implications. Okay. But, you know, it, it takes a little while sometimes. <laughs> On the topic of chat GPT, do you believe that AI should even exist? What's your kind of take on the whole thing? Yeah, I really do. I, I think that it's going to give um, opportunities for people to take things to the next level. So let me use an example. So with my presentations, when I teach, I teach from PowerPoint slides. Now, when I was in my college university days, PowerPoint didn't exist. People, professors would write up on the blackboard and we'd have to copiously take notes and all that. Now, you know, Microsoft put out PowerPoint and there's hundreds of millions of users that know how to use PowerPoint. And what it's done is it's given people the ability to, anyone can create a presentation, right? It, it, it's not that hard. You can learn things, you can capitalize it. And so for every class that I teach, I get a presentation deck, I present it and I say, okay, here it goes. Um, sometimes it's recorded, I, I distribute it to everybody and it just makes my life so much easier. I think AI is going to do the same thing. It's going to take our industry, it's gonna take marketing and it, it can't be the creative marketer, but it's gonna give us opportunities to focus more on creativity and less on coding and figuring out how do I dig my way through Google Analytics and that kind of stuff. Interesting, so it's reducing that friction and then we sort of jump to the next order, a, a higher order sort of pattern of thought. What are we left with? 
I think there's a lot of understanding the data. I mean, with AI, we've probably all heard about biases inherent in there, depending on it, it, it can only take what you put in and, and, and what you give it and everything. So I'll give an example on one of the consulting jobs I got. Um, I was brought in and they had an existing model and it was a machine learning model. And, you know, I was asked if I could beat it. And I did in, in a head to head test in a live campaign, my equation did 8% better. And the CEO of the company asked me, why do you think that happened? And I said, because I understand your product and I understand intuitively how you're marketing it and what type of data would be available for that or helpful for that. And so in that case, you know, if you feed it all into the system, there's still these interactions just from our marketing experience and background say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. or this make doesn't make sense or something. And I mean, you need a strong operational system to get there. Um, but I think you still that that human critical thinking, if if we have that, it's going to always be valuable. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking about AI a lot and I read a it was, it was like a paragraph, one pager about uh, it was ChatGPT making an argument of, for why ChatGPT shouldn't exist. And I thought it was so interesting. And it was it was a compelling argument, too. <laughs> if it truly is smarter than any human being that exists or any combination of human beings, then that's a very dangerous situation um, for everybody. And the, the AI itself made that argument, um, <laughs> not even a, like a person. I mean, I'm sure many people made that argument, too. <laughs> yeah, I just think that... Um... And I recognize some jobs are going to go away, some are going to morph, but that's always happened throughout time. I mean, it's funny, I teach about Henry Ford in my intro to business class and, and all the changes that he made and said, oh, automation was going to put people out of work. And Henry Ford had more people working for him than anybody else did. He, he was the largest employer in the U.S. after a while. And, and it, to me, greater automation and AI assistance, I'll call it. It'll, it'll give marketers more time. It'll give new, new tools and, and it'll enable us to focus more on the customers, more on the creativity, more on the innovation, and less on trying to figure out how do I wrangle the data and pull it down. And, you know, I have to teach myself Python and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I truly believe that. I love that. Yeah, I, I saw there's some examples of like AI that can code itself. Like it, it just can create code that does certain functions and you just tell it what to do. So if you take away the barrier to entry for creating your own application that you don't have to necessarily know all the coding and you could just sort of direct uh, an AI to code it, then there a lot more people could actually create technology and software. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it goes back to where we started or earlier in this conversation about just being curious. You know, curious data people to me, are going to drive new kinds of innovation. They're going to drive new creativity. And AI is going to give them more of an opportunity to do that versus, but, but there has to be that data literacy, right? I mean, brands, marketers, they're, they're going to be held responsible for whatever they're doing. And they're not going to necessarily want to risk just turning it all over to a machine and getting blasted on social media or running up a foul against something. They're always going to want somebody to go back, you know, be curious, do critical thinking, right? Yeah, on that note, um, as you look in the sort of ecosystem of advertising, what are some of the things that you wish were different in the world of advertising? On the growth side of things, I would say with the prolifer proliferation, I can't even say that word right, of connected devices, 
you know, they're, they're, the bandwidth is growing, right? We're going, we've gone from 3G to 4G to 5G, you know, internet speeds are going quickly. Uh, you can do so much dynamic insertion and, and it's being done for digital, but I'm doing work with Samsung on connected TV. Um, connected TV is just so fragmented, right? I mean, there, there's just so many local market agreements and stuff. There's, it, you know, screen manufacturers are involved like Samsung, right? The content owners are involved. The streaming services are involved. You know, in, in digital advertising, things are a lot more organized. I, I would say it's, you know, it's it's really a handful of big players that have set some standards and, and are, are running things through. But in connected TV, it's all over the board. And, you know, there's so many different ways that things can be delivered, whether it's, you know, HDMI, what kind of bandwidth you have, but, but these new apps are being developed and, and, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but I think that it's so early in its stages that it's a mess. And I could see something like, you know, watch something on TV and see the same ad 20 times in one day. Right. And that doesn't happen in digital. Uh, maybe it happens in some cases, but it's really rare. And, and there's just not that um, maturity there. And, and I think there's a big opportunity. Um, but it's one of the things because more money is spent in TV advertising than any other means of distributing advertising that it's interesting to me that it seems so early, so embryonic. Why do you think that's the case? I think because a lot of the agencies are used to um, the people who started on those are, are from the TV industry, right? So TV was always linear in the past and you would have to buy the ad, you'd have to buy the airtime up front. And it's just changing. They have a thing called the new fronts. Uh, so a lot of people didn't come with, from a digital background. A lot of people are core. Oh, I've worked for Comcast for 20 years or I've worked for, um, you know, Fox for 10 years or, or, or um, I came from Nielsen and, and and we're struggling with all this. You don't get, I mean, every so often you'll get somebody that comes in, oh, I work, came from Google. And they're like, the agencies aren't even set up to work that way. It's it, it seems like a lot of the big agencies have a different team for TV than they do for digital and, and haven't got it integrated. I'm, I'd actually be curious, I'll turn a question back to you because you know, your experience with direct TV, I mean, are, do you see the same things or, or do you see it differently from your perspective? Well, the way I see it, it, the first thing that came to my mind was American infrastructure. So America built all these amazing railroads and bridges and everything like 50, 70 years ago. And now they're all in disarray and we have some, one of the worst infrastructures of any major developed country. I, that's the way I sort of see TV. It's in this really odd place where it's an older technology, but a lot of companies are still keeping it alive and then trying to retrofit digital, you know, ad advertising technology onto it. And I think that's where the, the challenge is. Like we, we would have to completely rethink television advertising, I think, to bring it into the modern age, which we kind of are. Um, with things like the streaming platforms and um, addressable TV and things like that is sort of a new take on how television even works. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, there's and there's new creative technology tools available that, you know, you could say they're disrupting traditional TV production, right? Because I mean, look at us, we're in different rooms, we're talking, it used to be for TV, and it probably still is for all these um, you know, regular programs, you have to get everybody together in the same place and you've got the sets and you've got all that. 
Um, but obviously for any like newscasts or, 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 or that sort of thing, you know, people can be wherever, but TV production is, isn't used to that. They're used to, Oh no, we, we get, we get a client meeting, we get everybody together in the same place. And then we all fly back to wherever we came from and so on and so forth. And, you know, now really, you know, that's gone by the wayside, you know, you, you, aside from just live streaming, as you know, you can create a whole program, edit it, and people will never have to even be in the same place. And, and I haven't seen any of the like Netflix shows or, or Amazon prime or Hulu or any, you know, too much in that realm yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Sort of a rethinking the technology we have, but if it was built you know, in this day and age, rather than when it was at, when it was first built, how would it be different? You know, the, one of the first things that came to mind is, you know, how in the James Bond, there's the fingerprint firearm. And that's what, you know, you need the fingerprint in order to use it. It's such a good idea, right? It's like a good safety measure. And we didn't have anything close to that when, uh, you know, like 100 years ago. So like rethinking how technology could be different if we built it today. That's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, I suspect it would be more pro like uh, programmatic advertising, right? Because you, you could simplify all the planning, the scheduling, the content management, the reporting, everything could be done within a programmatic sense. But of course, TV way predates that. And there's so many things that are set up that uh, that, that that would be tough to just take you off your script for a minute. Um, yeah. It got me thinking about platforms and how big an impact they have on the marketing workforce because in thinking about someone like me who comes in and says, oh, I can come in and develop something and not necessarily have the experience with that particular business. So if you go back, you know, when I started at Merkle in 2000, you needed a lot of content, you needed a lot of background on that business because they all had specialized tools. You didn't have these platforms out there like, you know, AWS for Amazon or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure and all of these apps that are more pervasive, like saying, oh, you've got Tableau or you've got Power BI. Great. I can just do this. And I think that gives a big opportunity for innovation because you don't have to spend all this time learning the tools. You, you've got a core set of people that have to maintain and operate the platform. But then people like me, an additional person can just more come in on a one-off basis, you know, to support new product development or deliver, help deliver a new capability or help deliver a new service. And so from a business perspective, uh, that gives opportunity to people everywhere who can come in and not have to spend a year learning all the tools specific to that business, can come in and more hit the ground running and just learn the mission, the vision, what drives the business and, and start to be able to, it kind of goes back to the thing about PowerPoint you have all these tools now everywhere and this whole, you know, not having to code gets more pervasive and it enables more innovation out of there. And it just kind of came to me because when we were talking about TV, it's like, yeah, because a lot of these tools that exist in digital are, you know, people can learn very quickly. It's like, oh, I don't necessarily have to sit down and learn Python anymore. I got an app that I can just pull it down and do this in Power BI. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, that reminds me of the idea of, I don't know if it's Honda, I don't know a lot about cars, but there are certain cars that are way easier to repair and to, like, they're easy, they're better to own because they're, they're, the parts are more abundant and there's maybe more shops that are able to fix it. And so there is this sort of law of 
um, you, you benefit from standardization of tools and of supplies in general, I think. Um, and maybe there's some cost to it, but um, I totally agree. And, I, and that actually leads me to uh, something I wanted to talk about, which was uh, a business idea that I have that has to do with standardization of um, tools. And what it is, is uh, a Bloomberg terminal for media buying. So the same exact thing as Bloomberg, the Bloomberg business, where you're taking all the data that a marketer needs to uh, purchase media programmatically, and you're, at, you're attaching the functionality of being able to purchase that media into one software. And ideally, it extends to all of the channels that you could run with your marketing. So it's literally all done in one terminal. Um, this sound, this feels like a natural evolution of marketing because right now we are so fragmented in, you know, if you want to buy Snapchat advertising, you have to go down the Snapchat route. And if you want to buy on TV, you have to do a completely different set of steps to get, to get on television. Um, and so what is, what are your thoughts around that sort of standardization and the unification of um, where media buying is done? Do you think that's going to happen inevitably? I think it will. I think that's why marketers have had a difficult time. You know, even my connected TV example of, of having a coherent uh, marketing plan or campaigns for brands, you know, like Linear had, because there's so many different platforms. There's so many different sources out there. And I think that standardization is just going to really help uh, to get there. In my mind, it's going to be back to the AI concept we had where it could inspire a new wave of advertising and marketing creativity because marketers would have to become more data literate to understand all those different sources that you talk that would feed into it and everything. But that would become an integral part of designing campaigns or managing marketing campaigns. And that data literacy would make it better for everybody. It would make it better for the audiences. It would make it better for people who are buying. It would make it better for the advertisers and all that. Um, and, and it's like, what's the term they use? Data democratization would have to happen to get there. Is there a way to figure out what we should be automating? Yeah, that's a good question. That requires a lot of thought because um, I, I think it's, experimental really maybe as marketers we need to understand more about operations to understand what could and should be automated and maybe that's another trend alex is that um you know in a, a typical marketing curriculum you don't learn a whole lot about operations it might be a small part of a you know entry-level business class at least it is one of the places where i teach but the thought is, is if you're going to standardize this and have all these apps and have things where you need to decide what's automated and what isn't, I think we need a better understanding of operations, which is not a strong point of mind as much because it never had to be. Um, but recognizing that understanding what goes under the hood, just like talking about how does programmatic work for display, you know, has to be broadened and we are going to need to understand, you know, I talk about data ops or whatever, what we, you know, what's DevOps, you know, operations development and things like that. Things that we haven't had to think about so much before going there. And that's probably why I struggle with answering this question a little bit, because 
in my tenure, haven't had to worry about the operations. And I think to do it right, we're going to need to. For you know, education, I've heard the criticism, and I don't necessarily completely disagree that in um, in specifically in marketing, um, a lot of the stuff that's taught in universities is a few years behind um, because we are so rapidly evolving in terms of the technology being used that you would have to be basically a data scientist to understand the cutting edge of marketing. You're not going to learn that in your classic marketing class right now. What do you think is going to people are going to be learning let's say 3 or 4 years from now in the future in marketing? You know, the stuff that really maybe we should be talking about today. What do you think that's going to be? Yeah, well I think data literacy first and foremost. I mean, just like um, you know, I, if you go back to when I started in the business world, nobody was PC literate. PCs were new. I mean, anybody that had been born before say 19 I don't know, 65, 1970, didn't really know how to use a PC because they weren't on everybody's desks until, you know, the mid 90s. And now it's table stakes. You can't work a, a job like ours without being PC literate and knowing all that. So I think it's going to get the same way for data. You're going to have to become more data literate. I mean, everybody and their brother, for instance, you know, has gotten um, certified in Google Analytics, right? If you've done anything in display. And it's just, table stakes for the game, but that's just one example. It, it needs to get broader. As Google phases out cookies and as we have all these connected TV pieces coming in and everything, it, it's really getting into the data literacy and and tools for data mining. Um, I'm a big um, believer that people who are more tech oriented, you know, probably should learn Python. It's a relatively, as programming languages go, is relatively user friendly. But even beyond that, I mentioned Power BI. Uh, Microsoft's put a lot of money into Power BI. I, I don't really like to bet against Microsoft. And, you know, it, as people learn it, it's amazing. It, it does what, you know, you needed a SQL programmer to do before. And so learning those in the marketing classes, I think, are going to be important. And I think the other thing is you talked about things being out of date. It, it depends on the program. It's it, it's hard because a lot of the couple of all, all the places I work with, all three of them are continuing to evolve. Um, I actually teach a web analytics class of all things, and that changes every term, right? And so the content will change, but it's hard because you can't go to a textbook then, right? So uh, in my intro to business class, the textbook starts off and it's, it was written pre-COVID. And it says inflation hasn't been over two and a half percent in the last 20 years. So we don't need to worry <laughs> about inflation. <laughs> So you get the point, right? It's like that book is out of date now. It became out of date two years after it went in. And so I minimize the use of textbooks and I point people to URLs. And it's challenging as a teacher because I'm like, let me find the latest Gartner study or, you know, let me find some blog that you could go to. And oh, by the way, here's some, ah, shoot, there's a paywall there. I can't give you this one. But, you know, I, I think that's the direction things are going. Podcasts like this are a way to round out that education and hear what's really going on like right now at the cutting edge from people who are in the industry um, and who are seeing it every day. That's, it, I think there's a democratization of that information um, through social media. Exactly. Awesome. And I'll have people, um, I don't necessarily have people watch podcasts, but I'll point them to YouTube videos and say, watch this video. It it's, gives a different perspective than I have, and it'll balance it out. And, you know, when I have them write papers, I'll ask them specific questions that came off of that video. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I, I, I like is, you know, again, people, we could really go off on a tangent about what's the value of professors and all this. And part of the value is being able to have that one-to-one -one interaction, because if you watch YouTube, you can't question each other. And so I recently taught a class on consumer insight for marketing, and there were 10 people in that class. And I would talk for 15 minutes, and then we'd have a five to 10 minute discussion. Then I talked for 15 minutes, we'd have another five to 10 minute discussion. And that would go on for three hours. And that was the format, because it's like, well, if you're just going to listen to me talk, or I'm just going to listen to you talk, we don't have any interaction. So why are we even meeting in person, right? <laughs> wow. And okay, so let me challenge you there. Why? Why can't teaching be automated with an AI? Why should it not be automated with an AI? If you can ask an AI questions and keep it conversational like that, what's the value of having a real person there? Yeah, and I haven't given that a whole lot of thought. It's it's one of the things, you know, you, you, there's actually back to chat GPT. You know, there's these things out there that are based, that are saying that, oh, um, you know, is that going to take over the teacher's role? And, and, and what's going to happen with all of this? And we're as teachers, we're actually having discussion on it. And it's in the early embryonic stages at this point. And so, you know, within there, um, you know, saying, well, AI is invading education, or, you know, a chat GPT can write papers, it can formulate responses. Um, but what I would look at is say, there's always new technology, and technology is going to win out. Um, way back when I was in school, they didn't allow calculators in classrooms. You had to add things up by hand. And obviously, you know, that went away by the time I was in high school. But earlier, you couldn't. So I think AI can be introduced into the classroom. It, it's a function of how. And I think that as educators, we need to take a new perspective, reevaluate the processes, the standards, the metrics. And what might be more of the point is again that whole critical thinking that curiosity that's spontaneousness of having a student think something through in real time and being able to respond in the same way that you and i are talking and recognize that okay we're now going somebody's own specific experience right um somebody came to me uh, like i asked them questions and i say uh give me an example in your life where you made a mistake and learned from it Okay, that's that's one of my in-class exercises. And everybody's is going to be so unique that unless I can touch into the emotional part of that, you know, somebody came and said, oh, my God, when my uh, brother came home, it was his birthday and I completely forgot and I went out and didn't get him anything and I was hurting for weeks afterwards. That emotion, the teacher's got to be able to tap into and say, great, and you're going to learn more from that than you will from anything else. And you'll never make that mistake again, right? And so I think we... I look at it as augmenting. Right? With the AI, you only have one mindset. You only have one opinion. And I think that's one of the most important parts about the education system is teaching people to have different opinions. Um, so that on its own, I think, is a compelling reason to keep it uh, as people being the driver of education rather than the uh, one uniform mindset. Yeah, I think what that'll have help is um, whether students understand the content well enough to to figure out what are the key issues you know what what are the insights that you could draw from it it, it was it was interesting because i asked students and again recognizing this is the textbook that i mentioned earlier that said inflation hasn't been above two and a half percent for the last 20 years so we don't have to worry about it 
So I actually asked the students, I said, well, in business, there are things you can't control that are just going to happen. What do you consider to be the two most biggest things that business have to adapt to this? And this was a, a last year's course. So in 2022, that there's nothing they can do about it happening. They just have to figure out how to adapt. And the biggest answer I got was rising prices being not uniform. So it wasn't inflation per se. It was the fact that, oh, well, apartment rents are up 20%, but milk is only up 4%. Um, and it's it it disadvantages some businesses versus others. And the second thing they came up with was um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so as a teacher, I have to spur conversation. Now, fortunately, Russia's U invasion of Ukraine, uh, very, very few people in the U.S. are in favor of it. But it can tell you that things could be brought up that would have different viewpoints. And as you said, you know, hear different viewpoints on it. So if I could invite you know, a Vladimir Putin disciple to my class, um, aside from the fact they probably start throwing things at him, you know, could you have, could you see a different perspective? What are some of the threats to the marketing world that you see? Some things that are going to change how we approach marketing in the future. And obviously, um, you know, identity resolution and understanding who people are might, is going to change. Is there anything else that's less mentioned maybe or forgotten about? Uh, that we're going to be facing soon in the marketing world? Going back to the AI thing, um, we are going to have to stay current enough so that AI doesn't take over jobs. I mean, we're going to have to learn enough about the tools and harmonize our own strengths into that to be able to say, okay, how do we go to that? I also think that there's going to be more laws, not only like um, privacy laws like GDPR or CCPA or things like that, being able to adapt as those go through. I mean, Google's been saying for a couple of years, they're going to get rid of cookies. They're going to get rid of cookies. We know it's going to happen at some point. So that feeds into your identity resolution. But anything along those lines, any type of legal changes and things like that, uh, you, you know, we need to roll with. And, um, and it's hard because, again, I talked about platforms earlier on. Oftentimes, extensive systems have been set up to leverage that. And I, I'm sure one of the reasons Google hasn't abolished the third party cookie is because it would mess up advertising big time and it's got to have to be a little more gradual. And so it's it's that balancing act. But when a law passes and you've got to do something, you've got to do something. So um, it, it's maybe extending the identity resolution part to similar type of things, but also like just what we've been talking about with the AI is recognizing that it's going to be less about coding. It's going to be less about, you know, uh, having to necessarily know the proper grammar. You can do Grammarly and all that kind of stuff. It's more about that creative thinking. It's more about, you know, how do we operationalize this in such a way that um, it's not impersonal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly hope that there there are that that the trajectory that advertising takes is a lessening of frequency and in increasing in the value that the message provides so it's like a unique value for the for the person that that is being addressed and it's you know it's kind of like the polar opposite of where it all started with one message for everybody and then you know i think the the ultimate apex is one message for one person. And, you know, every single person gets a different one. 
Um, yeah, I think I think the reality in the short term, and what I mean by the short term is maybe between now and twenty thirty, so intermediate term, is learning more about segmentation. Uh, I led consumer segmentation for three and a half years for Nielsen. I teach it in a couple of my courses because trying to get to that one-to-one -one with all the privacy laws and all the fragmentation and everything is, is going to be hard, but going somewhere in between and saying, okay, well, not everybody sees the same ad, but maybe um, I've, I've used this example before where it, it, Ford Motor Company was the example where Ford has four products in reality. They, they have a, a Ford car, a Lincoln car, which is their luxury brand, an SUV and a pickup truck. They could just start with four segments and say, okay, people who watch ESPN are more likely to get the pickup truck as they do today. People who watch Hulu are more likely to get the SUV and just continue that out and broaden it down from four segments to maybe 16, you know, and, and, and move in that direction. And I just think that that consumer segmentation is just going to become so valuable. And uh, there's a lot of players that are, are, are doing stuff in that space right now. At what point when you're building a business, would you recommend somebody introduce segmentation into their marketing? So is it right in the beginning, you're figuring out who is my audience, who should I be reaching? Or is it, you know, you start with an organic sort of you create the product, you create the value, and then you see sort of organically who's attracted to it and build from there? I think it depends on the product. And you could always survey people, you know, do a quick, you know, three question survey, send it to their phone that people are willing to answer and start seeing if there are differences. So if I play out forward and use Maserati as an example, Maserati can get by very well with one segment. It's, it's, people who've got it made, they've got wealth, they want to show they got wealth, they're comfortable, you know, the advertising for them could be, you know, an upper class person that lives in an affluent suburb and drives a $100,000 car. You know, Ford obviously has more than four vehicles and uh, are all over the place. So you can tell by the product. But if it's an early stage business, and you're trying to figure that out, Places that I've worked with have just shot surveys out to people and say, great, you know, sign up, send out, send us their mobile device, make it quick. And let's just see if we got different segments. Even for this podcast, who, who are my segments? Who are the people who are interested? And I really don't know. I want to, I want to send out a survey or something so I can get some kind of data from people um, and maybe do a giveaway. I, I'm still thinking about it. Some kind of an incentive to, um, to participate and give some data. So I'm still figuring it out, but uh, the listeners will you know, hear about, more about it soon. What I'd like to close with is something that I've talked about before is, is it, it ties back to your, is curiosity an innate thing or can it be learned? There are some things that are innate and there are some things that can be learned. And I, th I think I would encourage everybody to understand where their strengths are and, and, and how you can play to those. So for me as a teacher, two of my big strengths, one of them is communication and hopefully that comes across in the podcast. Um, but another one is context is, this is where it helps being a consultant is that I, it's like the questions I ask with Nielsen of saying, well, how did you come up with these designated marketing areas? And you know, five out of six people didn't ask that question. And I just need to understand why things were put together. And then I can say, oh, okay, I get it. Now I understand that helping me understand the past tells me how to move forward in the future. And what I would encourage people to do is to think about it and think about 
what they are good at and what they're not good at. Um, I am actually not good at selling. Okay. People have asked me, said, Oh, you can talk really well. You know, can you sell? It's like, um, nah, I'm good at expository talk, not at persuasive talk. And so, <laughs> you know, you think, thinking about that and, and recognizing you're going to be a lot more interested in what you do in marketing and what you do in life. And if you go into innovation, if you understand where your real strengths are. And so I just want to leave that as a, it's a big theme of mine and I'm sure I've said it before, but I want to leave that as a final thought for your listeners. Thank you, Dave. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.